Well, good morning. It's been a while. I, uh, my name is John. I think a lot of you know me. Some of you may not. Am I echoing? Um, yeah, I'm one of the pastors here. And I just want to offer a disclaimer. I think Jay offered one the last time he preached, which he didn't need to. The only time that I don't look forward to Jay preaching is, well, every Sunday, because that means he won't be leading us in song. Um, That's the only reason. Um, But I thoroughly enjoy it. Jay, when you preach, Ryan, Jim, um, you guys do great. I'm the least of these. So the disclaimer is, if you are visiting Sojourn, like Jay said, even though he didn't need to say it, um, take heart. Dylan's going to be back next week, so just know there's, there's a better quality normally. Um, I kid, um, but I'm serious. I'm just grateful for Dylan and just his faithfulness and how he brings it. I mean, just what a blessing. Um, well, let's pray, and we'll get into it. God, if anything, be lifted up this morning. I pray that it would be you. If any truth would be received. I pray that it would be your gospel. We love you, God, because we know you first loved us. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Well, looking around, um, I think most of us in this room uh, this morning have have lived long enough to experience some tough challenges in life. I think many of you have probably faced things that uh, you thought were impossible, things that were just too big for you. And I know that I've been there many times, more than I'd like to admit. But one obstacle that really sticks out to me as I think back on my life, and as trivial as this may sound to to some of you, it was the college experience. And just to provide a little context, I was raised in church. I had a family that loved me. I grew up very middle class, but I had what I needed. And as I grew older, I, I became very familiar with what Jesus called the wide road in Matthew 7, the one that leads to destruction. Um, I'll spare you the details, but I wasn't your typical good kid. And part of my sin makeup was my attitude towards education. In my mind, it was a hoop I had to jump through. I just wanted to get through it and move past it. And so that attitude led to a lot of dishonesty and clowning around in the classroom. In fact, I'm pretty sure I still hold the record at Catoosa Public Schools for the most swats ever given to a single student. Um, Seriously. I think I got swats every day of my life in the fourth grade. Um, It wasn't long after that that they did away with those. A lot of you kids don't understand really what that is, but it's where they take a big wooden board and beat your rear end really hard. (laughs) It's equivalent to caning. Um, If someone who knows, really knows what they're doing, like it it hurts. And so when it came to the academic part of school, let's just say um, I had a lot of unsanctioned help with my tests and my homework. Um, Good grades were important only to the degree that they kept my parents off my back and kept them believing that there was maybe a glimmer of hope for their wayward son. And so you fast forward to the high school years um, and things really began to unravel, um, especially after I got my license. Um, I had to And I I knew I'd do this (laughs) after that singing. I really didn't want to stop singing. I turned a corner in my life, and it wasn't a good one. Um, What began with just orneriness and typical teenage boy foolishness, that had uh, spiraled out of control. But then, at age 18, God saved me. I 
and it was radical. Man, I'm sorry. But during that first year or so of my walk with Christ, I wasn't really being discipled. And so I was starting to slip back into, into some very simple behaviors. Um, I didn't know much about walking with God. I was very skilled in the ways of the world. So it was easy for me to fall back and, and just lean on the familiar, especially where my old friends were concerned. We had some very deep relationships. They were not founded on truth, um, but there was loyalty there. And I really, really struggled. And as you might assume, life in that short period of time wasn't easy on me. Um, I was living under constant conviction. Jesus made it very clear in that time that I needed to leave my hometown of Tulsa. Um, he made it clear that, that that path to leaving Tulsa was a college education. But there was a problem. I was utterly unprepared for the college classroom. It seemed like climbing Mount Everest to me because I had taken such a dishonest and irresponsible approach in high school. But in spite of that, I knew I had to go. You know, I don't think I've, I've ever heard the audible voice of God, but this was probably the closest I've ever been. And, and, and the, the voice that was ringing in my head was, John, you will leave Tulsa or you will leave this earth. He won't lose a single one. So, <clears throat> looking at my options, I chose Southwestern Oklahoma State University in Weatherford, Oklahoma, mainly because it was three hours from Tulsa, which meant distance from old influences. And that was the primary aim. There was a secondary motivation, and that was it was within the state of Oklahoma, and I knew student loans were in my future. So out-of-state tuition was not going to happen. Um, so as unconfident and unprepared as I was, I took that step. What God, what God had done in my life and what he had delivered me from to that point was, was more than enough evidence for me to know that he would see me through it. And even at times... Even though at times, because of my sin, I struggled to believe that. He saw me through it. He was faithful to provide, and he provided in some very specific ways. For instance, and I'll, I'll just share a few things because there were many. But I got to Swasu, and going there, I knew that there was a random roommate assignment policy. Like, unless you knew someone as a freshman, you just pretty much you showed up, and whoever it was, that was your roommate, and you got who you got. Um, but in my heart, I just knew, I just thought, God, I need, I, I need to be paired with someone who loves you. Um, I need a roommate that loves you. And I think that thought, I know that thought was put in my mind by God. And he knew that he was going to give me a roommate that loved him. And he did. Um, it was a guy named Scott Taylor. And he was a, a very strong believer. And God used him in my life, in a very vulnerable stage of my life, to just love on me and, and help me plug into good godly community and campus ministries there. God also provided some classmates who literally showed me how to study. I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but I had zero study skills. I mean, I can count on one hand, maybe one finger, the number of times I actually did homework while I was in high school. I was awful. I had no idea what I was doing, and God provided. And I could go on, but the point is God was faithful to provide what I needed to do what he asked me to do. And one of the most important things I learned in college is that there will always be challenges that God puts in my life. And there are always going to be challenges that are more than I can handle. But how I choose to respond to them is up to me. And looking back at the beginning of my college career, had I set my sights solely on ac the academic challenges of college, I would have failed. But in his wisdom, God made college seem so difficult that I felt I really had no other option but to keep my eyes fixed on him to make it through. And my faith was very imperfect and inconsistent, but that's what I did. I looked to him, and you know, things went far better than I thought they would. Um, that first semester was okay. I made it through. And then after that semester, 
God led me to, to OU in Norman, Oklahoma, where many godly influences were waiting on me. That's a story in itself. But there were two men by the names of, of Max Barnett and Ronnie Rogers that God used in some very powerful ways to show me what it was to walk with him. Janine. That's a mom for you. She's a good one. He showed me what it was to walk. They showed me what it was to walk with him. Um, and that was the plan. And I'm, I'm forever grateful for those guys. Had a huge impact on my life. And there's more to that story, but you don't pay me to stand up here and tell stories, right? <laughs> they don't pay me. <laughs> You're thinking, well, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the point is, as Jim Evans used to say a lot, for those of you who know Jim, God doesn't write checks that he won't cash. If he asks of, if he asks of us the impossible, he'll make a way. And looking at our passage today, the gist of what Moses commands of Israel here in Deuteronomy 10 didn't just seem impossible. It was. Just look at what Moses said in verses 12 and 13. He says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today. There's not an all in verse 13, but you might as well put an all in front of the commandments, all the commandments. Anyone here think they can nail that? To fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep all the commandments. That's a high bar. Who among the people of Israel could do this? No one. Not even Moses. And Israel only needed to look at the previous generation to be reminded of that. The standard was high, it was above them, and they needed help. But far too often when God leads us into the seemingly impossible, we either respond with a man-centered fear or we respond with pride. And Israel had recently experienced the consequences of both of those options. What did a man-centered fear get them? Forty years in the desert, three adult survivors. Just look at how they responded when they heard the report of the giants in the land. They were clearly focused on their own abilities or inabilities and what they were convinced would happen if they were to engage these things in battle. Could it have been that they didn't stop to consider God's abilities and what he could do? Possibly. Or maybe the real issue was they didn't trust that he would do it. Faith had escaped them, and so they came under discipline, 40 years in the desert. But then look what happens. Upon receiving the 40-year sentence, they decided to go ahead and give it a try on their own. And pride earned them a brutal beatdown by the Amorites. They decided they were just going to go ahead and do it. Even though Moses said, God's not going to be with you. No, we're going to do it. We can do this. No, you can't. They learned some hard lessons in that brief history of their time. Betting on yourself is no way to live. It's a losing strategy. The fear of man and pride will compete hard for your destruction and they will win. So you fast forward to the passage today and, and we have Moses laying out God's requirements, reminding them that God's standard still hasn't changed. But it's okay because he tells them the key to fulfilling those requirements and avoiding what happened to the previous generation was this, circumcise your hearts. Well, this hasn't gotten any easier. And I'm not going to go into detail on circumcision, but Moses' point here was this. Just like the foreskin is removed in the act of circumcision, there's a cutting away that happens. So Israel was commanded to remove the stubbornness from their hearts, to cut it away and remove it. And just like the outward sign of circumcision was a symbol of God's covenant with his people, so the circumcision of the heart was the inward proof that the Abrahamic covenant with God had been received in faith. Brothers and sisters, God wants your heart. If he has that, then everything else will follow. But there's a problem. Can a man change his own heart? Man, we just, it just kind of keeps getting worse. 
Can a car swap its own engine? You need a mechanic for that. Someone who understands the automobile at a deep, deeper level. The people of Israel couldn't change their own hearts, and neither can we. Ecclesiastes 9.3 says, The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? How do you change something or fix something you don't even understand? Anyone tried that before? I have. It didn't work out well. So, through Moses, God was reminding the people of what he required of them. His perfect standard, which was impossible for any human on earth to accomplish. Perfect trust and obedience. But then he offers a solution that was also impossible for any, any human to accomplish. Change your hearts, he tells them. Now, on the face of this, it kind of seems unfair, right? I mean, Moses is delivering this, this sobering pregame speech, as Dylan referred to it. And then right in the middle of it, he throws in a, be perfect and change your hearts. But the issue here is not fairness. It's the unchanging character of God. And God would not be God if he betrayed his, his character by his standards. He is a holy and just God who is unchanging throughout eternity. And his standards flow from his character. He is perfectly just, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy. So, what he demands of those who he created in his image will reflect his character. His purpose as our creator was to create us to worship him and reflect his image in our lives. And here we see the wisdom of God. In putting the impossible before Israel, he clearly shows us that we desperately need him to intervene and provide. It's not optional. We are in total dependence on God. And the acceptance or rejection of that truth will set your course for all eternity. But thankfully, God had more to say through Moses. He didn't just leave them dangling there with, be perfect and change your hearts. He shows them the way through the impossible. And what Moses shows them is the goodness and the faithfulness of God. What is the path to fulfilling God's requirements? What is the process for removing stubbornness from your hearts? Fix your eyes on, good, on God, the good and faithful God. Verse 17 says, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, because the very God who set the standard for all humanity is the very God who met the standard for all humanity. Israel didn't know it at the time, but that truth is what we would call the gospel hundreds of years later. Listen to what Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside or cut away every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, looking to God, the author and perfecter, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. It looks like the author of Hebrews was somewhat familiar with Deuteronomy 10. That's because it was God. And Moses, hundreds of years before this was written in Hebrews, is using the same formula. Sure, Israel didn't have all the variables accounted for at that point. They were peering through the fog. Jesus hadn't been crucified and resurrected yet. But Moses nonetheless points to the very same hope we now cling to. Look to God to remove the sin and stubbornness from your hearts. Look to him. He's the only one who can do it. You know, my family and I went down and, and hiked the Wichita Mountains for a day over spring break, which is why I'm a little gimpy. Um, I shouldn't try to chase teenage boys up through the boulders. Um, follow them, I should say. That's a better word. But we had a great time. If you're a hiker, I would recommend it. We've never been there, and it's three hours away, and I don't know why. It was great. But on the longer trail we took... Um, back to the east, there were these two really big round boulders that kind of jutted out over the top of all the other boulders on the ridge. And as I was chasing kids up and down these boulders, at times I would look up and around so I could get my bearings. I was off trail. And when I saw those two boulders, I knew where I was. 
they're a reference point to the trail. If I felt I was straying a little, if I kind of wondered how far we were getting, I just needed to look up. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the reference point. If you find yourself off trail, look up. That's the answer. He's not just the reference point. He's the trail. You know, I've had more than a few people ask me over the years um, how it was that Old Testament saints were saved. The answer is the same way we're, we're saved. Moses didn't offer a different formula. Look to God in faith. It was and is by grace through faith that any man has ever been saved. Just as we look back at what Jesus did on the cross, which produces a present and a future hope because God doesn't change, Moses looks back and reminds Israel of what God had just done in delivering them from slavery in Egypt, which should have also produced a present and future hope in the people of Israel. And in that looking back at God's faithfulness to his people, Moses points to the attributes of God, his character. He wants to shape and reinforce their concept of God. They needed to get this right, as do we. Because where we get it wrong is where sin is waiting to flourish. To look to God in deception is to not look to God at all. But to look to him with misunderstanding can result in a golden calf. No thanks. And Moses, of all people on the earth at that time, knew this. So he reminds them of who it was they were to look to if heart transformation was going to take place. He reminds them of the character and the attributes of God. He reminds them that they were serving the sovereign God of the universe, the God who owns all things. He says in in 10.14, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. In 17, he says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. So we've had the privilege over the years of uh, spending some time in the mountains in Angel Fire, New Mexico. We like mountains. And we have some friends who own a place, um, Daniel's parents, um, and they've been very generous in allowing us to go and spend time there. Um, first time we went, we, uh, we were sent a document um, by our friends that contained some, some basic guidelines regarding how to do things around the house. They, they call it a cabin. It's a nice house how to access the Wi-Fi, uh, procedures to follow before leaving, trash management. There are bears around that area, so you kind of have to be careful with what you do with your trash, etc. <clears throat> and each time we've gone, we've tried to abide by those guidelines. And we do so, for one, because they're our friends and we love them, which is another sermon. <clears throat> but then there's a simple fact that they own this place. It's up to them to establish the guidelines. And it's incumbent upon us to abide by those guidelines. I wonder how they would have felt if after one of our stays, we left the cabin with trash in the trash can, used sheets on the bed, wet towels on the floor, thermostat unchanged. I don't know for sure, but we may not have been invited back. They're really, really gracious people, so they may have invited us back anyway. Um, But how disrespected and unappreciated would would they might have felt if we had left the house in that condition? Well, ask yourself this, who owns this entire universe, according to what we just read? The heaven of heavens, the the earth and all that is in it, as Moses puts it. Does he then have a right over your life? He absolutely does. Does he have a right to lay down some guidelines and standards for his tenants? He does. Have we broken those laws and standards? We have. And death looms over us because of it. And remember our context here. The inhabitants of the promised land during that time were really bad tenants. Really bad tenants. They were living in full-on rebellion to the obvious rules and guidelines, the Romans 1 and 2 law that their creator had revealed to them. Leviticus 18, which is what I think Dylan read last week, shows us that they had rejected the designer as well as his design. I mean, they had rejected the very design of the designer. Remember what we just heard in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4, where God said, it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. So Israel could have great confidence in knowing that they were embarking on a mission supported and sanctioned by the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. 
the God who owns heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. But while Israel needed to know and believe that God was sovereign over all in order to embark on the conquest to take the promised land, they also needed to know and believe that he was sovereign in his conquest to render heart change. And he was intent on doing that because he loved them. And Moses says this, they were serving the sovereign God who in love chose them. Verse 15 says, Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. God could have chosen any nation, as we've heard many times, any people. He chose the lowly slaves of the Egyptians. Deuteronomy 7, 6 says, 7, 6 through 8 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In love, the Lord your God has chosen you. Now, most people, when you talk about God's love, they're okay with that. People like to talk about God's love as long as they get to define love. But many people get really uncomfortable when it comes to the subject of God's choosing. I used to be one of those. It was hard for me to reconcile in my mind. And in some ways, it still is. Because on the one hand, in space and time, we choose God. But then on the other hand, it's very clear in Scripture that God chose us first. And let me just say this, I'm not, I'm not trying to offend anyone. If you have a problem with what I'm about to say, then we can chat about it over coffee. I'd love to do that. But brothers and sisters, you can't read the Bible objectively and walk away thinking that God doesn't choose his people. It's all over the place. From Genesis to Revelation, it is all over. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And I'll encourage you on your own time to take a look at Romans 8 and 9. And consider this, the two most theological books, in my opinion, and I think a lot of guys would agree with this, the two most theological books in the New Testament, Romans and Ephesians, seem to especially highlight God's choosing of his people. It's not a coincidence. And I want to be careful because I'm not qualified to speak too strongly to this. So I'm going I'm to stick to the obvious. And here's what's obvious. Think about it. God initiates. God initiates. He created everything. Of course he initiates. God is first. And if he's first, then it makes very good sense that he chooses first as well. And again, it's what the Bible teaches us from beginning to end. Do we choose? Of course we do. After he chooses. It's simple as that. Actually, it's not that simple. It's really hard to grasp. It's really hard for us to grasp. It really is. I mean, how many hundreds of thousands of pages have been written to address that tension? But what it should do is lead us further and deeper into the word of God and into the fellowship with the saints, not the opposite. But really, guys, the mind bender here isn't whether God chooses. Honestly, that's a layup. Things get difficult when you start to think about the grounds on which he chooses. And this is where we just have to say we don't know, except that he chose us because he loves us. I mean, we know many reasons why he doesn't choose us. I don't need to read the Deuteronomy 7 passage again, but he clearly doesn't choose us because he thinks we're awesome. He chooses us because he's awesome. And as Dylan said earlier, he loves us because he loves us. We know he doesn't choose us because we're righteous. All of us like sheep have gone astray. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He doesn't choose us because we're pretty or handsome or smart or healthy. 
We know the standards that he doesn't apply in his choosing, but we have no clue why he does other than what the scripture clearly says, and that's that he loves us. He chooses us in his love according to the purpose of his will or the counsel of his will, as Ephesians 1 puts it. Now, if anyone wants to attempt to volunteer, volunteer the details on what the counsel of God's will looks like, good luck and tread carefully. That's the stuff that's above us. We don't know what that is entirely, but we do know he loves us. So Christian, can we just rest in knowing that God chooses because he loves us? I mean, knowing that alone, coupled with what he endured on the cross, should be good enough. And do consider what he had to choose to make us his choice. A brutal death on the cross. I'd say credibility has been established. I think he can be trusted with that choice. So Moses is reminding Israel of God's choice, and this is significant. God didn't make a mistake in choosing them. He knew they were weak. He knew they would fail in so many ways. He knew they, would, they couldn't keep his law perfectly. He knew his standards were impossible. And that Israel was prone to giving themselves to, to stiff-necked attitudes and, and stubbornness of heart. But he also knew something else. He knew his choosing didn't depend on Israel and their performance. He knew his choosing depended on him. God knew his choosing depended on him, his love for them, and his performance. And Moses is reminding them of this truth. You see, God's choice in election shouldn't make us uncomfortable. Instead, it should do the opposite. It should be a great comfort in knowing that God has chosen us. He never makes wrong choices. In fact, we see God's sovereignty and election being used all over the New Testament as a source of comfort and encouragement to the saints, especially in the midst of persecution. And Moses wanted the people to know that, yes, God's standards are high. They're above you. But so is God. Amen. And his choosing you in love implies that he's got a plan to enable you to meet those standards. Paul says in Ephesians 1.4 that he chose us that we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose us to be holy and blameless? That's what it says. And if God chose you for something, then he's going to see it through. Paul says this in Philippians 1.6. He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In love, God had begun a good work in Israel by his sovereign choice. And Moses wanted Israel to take comfort in remembering that. And his promises were yoked to his choosing. And that meant he would deliver. He would deliver the promised land to them and for those who trusted in him. And there were those who didn't. But for those who trusted in him, he would deliver them from their own stubborn hearts. And so along those lines, <clears throat> Moses reinforces to them that they were serving a God who delivers. Verse 21 says, he is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons, and look at you now. He didn't say that. The Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. It's not in the slides, but Deuteronomy 7, 8 says, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. Moses is saying, look what God has done. He delivers. He keeps his promises. And Israel should know this by now, right? I mean, how much had they seen to this point? But do understand, brothers and sisters, that if, if you know Jesus, then you've seen enough deliverance to last an eternity, literally. What have you been delivered from? Everything. And yet, like Israel, we still find ourselves wavering at times. We need to be reminded that God is still in the process of delivering. We call it sanctification. But what we really need to be reminded of is that God has already delivered us. Not from the hand of Pharaoh, but from the hand of his righteous judgment brought on by our own sin. And it came via the cross of Christ. And in Christ he has delivered to us the concrete hope of an eternal promised land that we're just waiting to see. It's not a matter of if, but when. 
Colossians 1, 13 and 14, 14 says, He, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Brothers and sisters, that is the ultimate deliverance. If you have that, you have everything, because you have God himself for all eternity. And therefore, we don't, we don't really have a need to be delivered from things like poor health or a bad job or even persecution for our faith. Sure, God may choose to do that, and he does, but don't come unraveled if he doesn't because the need has been met. The new earth awaits us, and it's better than new things or good health. God has hit the reset button for all of us in Christ. The eternal loving presence of our God in a new earth with a new body that won't die awaits us. Sure, we're a little held up in the already not yet, but it's coming because he promised it would. And Moses is faithful to remind Israel of all that God had done for them. He would deliver this promised land to them, and even more, he would deliver them from themselves, their own stubborn hearts, if they would trust him. But Moses isn't finished. He goes on to say, this God who has delivered you, he's a God of justice and mercy too. You see, God's standard was high. It had to be. But they were no longer under the rule of a tyrant Pharaoh. They were serving a just and merciful God who, verse 17 tells us, it is not partial and takes no bribe, who executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Moses wants to remind the people that this God who called them out of darkness, he has a big heart. And he can be trusted to be just and honest, unlike men who tolerate bribery and preferential treatment and unjust gain. He cares for everyone, especially the lowly, as evidenced in his choosing Israel. And Israel, as his chosen possession, can expect mercy from his hand. They'd already received it in abundance. And you know, I'm not sure why the sojourner is especially singled out among those who are listed I think there are probably many reasons, but, but I have some thoughts. And to be clear, this is, this is speculation on my part. But Moses obviously knew that th what was in store for the inhabitants of the promised land, right? Like he knew what was about to happen. He knew that they would be shown no mercy. Genesis 15, 16 shows us that God was watching for a long time. And that during the time of Moses, the sins of the Amorites had finally reached their fullness. God's judgment had been handed down and Israel would be the instrument he used. So, I think it could be that Moses was reminding Israel that life outside of the conquest they were about to begin needed to look different. Wartime was upon them, and justice was coming for those who occupied the promised land. But once it was over, this was the expectation. Love the sojourner. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. For the guy just passing through, the stranger and the sojourner, Israel was to be like God and love that guy. And don't overlook the fact that God was patient with the inhabitants of the promised land for over 400 years. He wasn't just patient, patient he was good to them. Remember the report of the spies in Numbers 13. The land was flowing with milk and honey. The grapes were so big you needed two guys to carry a, a big cluster. Can you imagine that? God was good and kind to these people for 440 years. It's no surprise, Psalm 145, 8 and 9, we almost got to 9, says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Not all that he has chosen, all that he has made. God's goodness hits everything. If it didn't, we wouldn't have anything. But again, he has a limit. And the Amorites and the others in the promised land had reached that limit. And God had handed down their judgment. But this judgment was specific to the conquest led by Joshua. Outside of that, God expected his people to reflect the kindness he had shown them while they were sojourning in Egypt. He expected them to show the kindness he shows to all that he has made.
And this too should have been an encouragement to Israel. The God that was calling them to his perfect standard is a God who is good and merciful, even to those who hate him. And if that's the case, then surely he had a good plan for his chosen. And he did. And he does. And it's been the same from the beginning. We've been shown pieces of this plan from the very beginning. We see it dimly on the heels of Adam's original sin in the garden. Blood had to be be shed to cover us. We see it dimly in the greatest judgment the world has seen to this day, the flood. All who entered the ark by faith would be saved. We see it in David and Goliath. David wasn't the hero. God would deliver his people from their greatest enemy in the most unsuspecting way. I could go on and on, but again, the plan hasn't changed because God doesn't change. And just like Israel, he has called us as well to the standard and purpose for which he designed us. He's called us to fear the Lord our God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord to remove the stubbornness from our hearts and to serve him and hold fast to him for our good. Verse 13 says, for our good. But again, we can't do it in our own strength and in our own pride. We'll fail just like Israel did. And we can't do it if we fear other things more than we do God. We'll fail just like Israel did when they succumbed to the fear of the sons of Anak. But we can do it if we look to the God Moses was holding up before Israel. If we look to Christ and the cross, we'll see that it's already been done. He's already done it because nothing is impossible with God. Matthew 19, 23 through 26 says this. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Moses was doing the same thing with Israel that Jesus does with us. He pulls back the curtain and reveals the bar, and it's too high for us. We'll never reach it. No camel will ever pass through the eye of a needle, and no man will ever be good enough except for one, and he was, and I hope you know his name. If you don't, today is the day. Romans 5, 18 through 21 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To quote the Apostle Peter in Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And there never has been. And now sojourn. What does the Lord require of you? I think we know the answer. Let's pray. God, your salvation is humbling. If we were playing some kind of other game, if we were playing a sport, it would seem like you're bad at picking teams. Uh, We look around and just like in Paul's day, we're not the most awesome. We're not all the smartest or the most morally sound or have the deepest integrity. Um, All of us, if we really examine our hearts, in light of your word and your standard, we would see that we're a mess. And we 
would just be uh, living lives of ultimate frustration, trying to look at your holy standard and trying to achieve that on our own. But Jesus, you're better than that. And you're so awesome, you're so powerful that you even pick a team that will bring you glory and make you look awesome instead of us. And, and we, always, we always get that wrong. And we want to take credit for it. We want to think there's something in us, but our salvation glorifies you. And we are all outcasts before you. And you adopt us, you choose us, you bring us into your family. And then you give us that message of free grace and reconciliation to everyone. We don't need to figure out if you chose us. We need to repent and believe the gospel. And if we believe the gospel, if we have true faith in you, God, then, then we're yours. And you chose us before the foundation of the earth, God. So will you give us compassion? Will you help us see ourselves as sojourners, people who are not at home here, people who don't live for what everyone else is living for? We should be different. We should be aliens. And at the same time, God, we should be on the lookout for bringing other people into this family. I pray that we would look at the poor and the weak and the broken and the miserable and that we would not see them as outcasts simply, but as people that you made who have infinite worth and value and that we would share good news with people who are ready to hear it. And some people won't be ready to hear it. And some people may uh, uh, lash out and hate us and think that we're idiots, but that's okay. They thought that about you. And you are the God who came to save them, and they did not comprehend you. So, God, help us understand your love better and help us show that love toward our fellow man. In your name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand? Thank God that he didn't just choose the A-team. Yo
Praise God.